All right, good evening, and we're uh, glad to be in church this uh, this evening. I told the uh, preacher before we came in, I said, uh, I hope nobody's in there when we walk in, and then uh, we come in, I see all these faces, and I got really nervous all of a sudden. I don't know how that happens, but it's a natural thing, and uh, if it sounds like I'm having trouble uh, breathing. Don't worry. It's just as my clothes are really tight. All right? That's all. And uh, that's what happened. It's a sympathy weight, I've been told. Uh, <laughs> your wife gets pregnant, and all of a sudden she wants to go out to eat. It's, let's go out to eat every single night for nine months. And that's always a good call. So make sure that you do that uh, for sure. I want to give a shout-out. I already shouted out my wife there, Jamie, in the front. And hey, Mom, how's it going? And that's my mom right there. And uh, we're glad to uh, be in church this evening, and it's exciting to see all the uh, the kids stuff going on, and the, their classes, and uh, the opportunities that they get to hear uh, the preaching of the word of God, and uh, that means that it's a it's a busy church, but it also means that there's stuff to do, and uh, so I'd encourage you to look for uh, ways that you can get involved. We're gonna be we're gonna jump right in. Jeremiah twenty nine is where we're gonna be. Jeremiah twenty nine. We're gonna start. Uh, with just verse 11, and then we're going to be in 2 Kings, uh, all over 2 Kings for a while too. But Jeremiah 29 and verse number 11. The Bible says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. And let's pray real quick, and then we're going to jump right in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. And God, thank you for those that are here uh, to hear the preaching this evening. I pray that you'd help us uh, to learn something and leave better than we came. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this is uh, a familiar verse, one that you've probably heard before or read before or even uh, maybe seen on a canvas at Hobby Lobby uh, or, or wherever. And it's a, it's a good verse. And <laughs> that's a good one, right, Brother Sid? And uh, good. And it's a familiar verse, one that we've heard before. We're familiar with it. And uh, it's, a, it's a great, it's an encouraging verse. And uh, the Lord is uh, sharing his thoughts toward us and uh, how he has uh, prepared, our, prepared our way. We have a good future if we trust in the Lord. And it's a great thought. And uh, really, it's a fascinating period in Israel's history. Now, it's, it's a nice verse, and it's encouraging, it's uplifting. But if you look at the story that happened just before Jeremiah 29, it's kind of a really dark and, uh, and discouraging time. And uh, so it, it all kind of starts with, uh, we have a, a really long, just so you know, the layout this evening, we got about a 10-minute introduction and a five-minute uh, one, two, three, and then we're out of here, okay? Uh, so it all kind of starts with Hezekiah, who we know was a great king uh, in Jerusalem. God did some great things with Hezekiah. Moving on, his son, Manasseh takes over when Hezekiah dies. And Manasseh was the uh, complete opposite of Hezekiah. He was totally different. It's like he learned nothing from uh, his father. And uh, the Bible says that Manasseh uh, was wicked. He lived in abomination after the ways of the heathens that they had thrown out of the promised land. uh, Manasseh, uh, he put a grove uh, to Baal inside of Solomon's temple and, uh, in, and David's grove as well. Uh, he worshiped Baal. He burned incense uh, in holy places all throughout Jerusalem. Manasseh was a horrible king, uh, just, just abominable, deplorable, all of those words. He lived in abomination for 55 years. Manasseh ruled 
in Jerusalem a horrible, wicked reign. And uh, he observed witchcraft and other wicked practices. He was such a bad king. This is an important point right here. He was such a bad king that God vowed to destroy Jerusalem and Judah because of Manasseh and what he did while he was king. God said, I'm done with this. 55 years of of wickedness and and corruption. Uh, You guys are done. I'm moving on, and we'll figure out what we're going to do after that. And uh, so the Lord denounced Judah and vowed to destroy Jerusalem. That's in 2 Kings 21. He says, I will uh, stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of mine inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies. So Manasseh dies after 55 years and his son Ammon takes over. And to give you a glimpse of how uh, truly corrupt this family was, uh, Ammon was king for a few years and then his servants kill him and make his eight-year-old son Josiah the king, right? That's, imagine being that bad, right, of a, of a person. Uh, that, that you'd, rather, you'd say, let's let your eight-year-old kid take over, right? That he could probably do a better job uh, than what you're doing. And so Josiah becomes the king of Jerusalem and Judah at just eight years old. And he is the exact opposite of his dad and his grandpa. Josiah commands, uh, he, com- he becomes king, he commands the keepers of the temple to take their money and repair the temple, go through, fix the beams, the structural, uh, do some structural repairs, those kinds of things. And while they're cleaning, uh, they find the book of the law, the Bible says, and they take it and read it to Josiah. It's a great story found in Second Kings. I'd encourage you to go uh, read that one as well. And uh, so, uh, but they find the book of the law. They take it to Josiah and they read it to Josiah. And Josiah hears uh, what the book of the law has to say. And he says, oh man, we have been doing everything uh, wrong. The, everything that we do is totally against what God wants us to do. Every part of our kingdom is, is wicked, and God is going to destroy us for it. Josiah realizes God's promise to destroy Jerusalem. And so then he goes on, uh, he makes a covenant with the Lord, the Bible says, to walk in his commandments. And that's in Second Kings 23.3. Then Josiah goes on a war path. And uh, he, he's going all around Jerusalem and Judah. And the Bible says that he puts down all of the idolatrous priests and, uh, who burn incense in the high places. Josiah puts them down, the Bible says. And he takes the altar out of the temple. And the Bible says he takes it down to the lake, uh, the brook Kidron. And he takes the grove there uh, to Baal. And uh, the Bible says that he burns it till it was ash. And then he stomps it till it was dust. And he sprinkles the dust in the brook Kidron. He got rid of that grove, right? That altar to Baal, he destroyed it. Then he goes to the houses of Sodomy and he destroys them as well. Then he finds, uh, he, then he's, he got tired of uh, going. And so he finds the ones that uh, are kind of hidden, they're secret. The secret places that they had to Baal and these other fake gods. And the Bible says that he cast them down as well. Not only did he cast them down, but he filled them with bones of men, right? The Josiah was done uh, with everything that had nothing to do with God, right? Josiah says, we're getting rid of all of this stuff. And so uh, 2 Kings 23, 25, the Bible says that there was no other king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might. 
neither after him arose there any like him. Josiah was a king second to none. And he was a great king who followed the Lord with everything that he had. Then Josiah dies, and it triggers the Lord's plan to destroy Jerusalem for their sin during Manasseh's reign. Jehoiakim takes over, Nebuchadnezzar comes uh, with his armies and, uh, from Babylon, and they, take, uh, they do two raids. And the second raid, kind of skipping years, so I'd encourage you to uh, go through. This is, all these details are amazing, but for time, we're going to skip forward. Nebuchadnezzar, the second raid that he does in Jerusalem, he takes everybody important. Anybody who was anybody uh, was going back to Babylon. They were going to serve Nebuchadnezzar. They're going to be a part of the kingdom there. And that includes uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It includes all the mighty men of valor, the craftsmen, the smiths, uh, 10,000 captives. The Bible says that the only people that were left in Jerusalem were the poorest of the poor. That was it. The serfs were left and nobody else was in Jerusalem. This once thriving city, a great city that God had raised up, and amazing people, God's own people, is reduced to nothing but a few peasants. That's it. That's all that's left in Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar had ransacked the city, stripping it of everything that made uh, Jerusalem great. Now, everybody is uh, captive in Babylon. Families are stuck in slavery, and uh, they are serving Nebuchadnezzar, and nobody really knows what the Lord is doing. What's the plan here, right? We've lived in Jerusalem our whole lives. My family is uh, from there and uh, all of that, and now we're stuck in Babylon. What is the plan? What is God going to do with us? Jeremiah sends a letter that says the following. It's uh, Jeremiah 29, verses 5 through 7, if you're still there. He says, Build ye houses and dwell in them. And plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives and beget sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons. And give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters. That ye may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city whither I have caused you to be carried away captives. And pray unto the Lord for it. For in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. Here's the application. This is the, the really... The, the cool thing about the Lord, right, uh, to use layman's terms, even while he was plotting their destruction, he was still planning their future. You see, God never said, hey, you're, you're wicked and you're corrupt and uh, you're horrible. You've done all these terrible things. I don't love you anymore. He never said that. God never said that at all. Uh, God was still planning their future, and he knew what would be uh, for them. He said, number one, he said, build houses. The people in Babylon were in a situation, like I just said, that they weren't sure how long they would be there. To them, God might throw down Nebuchadnezzar and just take him back to Jerusalem. They didn't know uh, what would happen. But the Lord lets them know, hey, settle down, build some houses, make the most of your new lives. Number two, have kids. And this is the, the tricky one, right? Having just had a kid, you think about, okay, what is going to be the best for my kid, right? Where, where, can, we raise, uh, where can we raise my kids uh, so that they're in the, the, the optimal situation, the best schools, uh, right, the, all the family around and everybody else, all the good influences and none of the bad, right? And that's what, probably where they were at. They were probably in a place where why would we have kids in a foreign land where they don't know the language and uh, we, we don't have the same customs. We don't have any of these things. But God says, hey, you're going to be here for a minute, so go ahead and have some kids. It's a whole new place, and now you're going to start 
a family. Settle down, have a bunch of babies. Number three, seek the peace of the city. Now this one is the one that is the least natural of the points that Jeremiah sends in the letter, right? He says, build houses, have kids. That's cool, I can do that. Totally, that's a a totally normal thing to do. But the the third thing that he says in the letter, and he kind of sneaks it in at the end, right? You don't really see it coming. But he says, seek the peace of the city, right? Now think about the city that they're supposed to seek the peace of. This is a city that, uh, that had destroyed their own city, right? This is the people that had come and, and ransacked everything. They cut uh, the vessels in the, in the temple. They cut them in two. They cut them in pieces. They left nothing but the poor people. They ripped them out of their own homes. And now Jeremiah says, hold on, but want them to be happy. You want them to be happy right? Uh, if that's me, I'm like, I'm all right. Thank you, though. You have a nice day. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm cool with, with the houses and the kids and everything else, but want my enemies to be happy. God knew that the only way that they could ever move on is if uh, they sought the peace of the city. And not only that, but do good. Do, do charity. Pray for them. In the worst of situations, God knew exactly what they would experience. Every, down to the last detail, God knew what they would go through. He knew about hardships and that they would suffer. And, but even after God allowed the destruction of Jerusalem, their hometown, God planned for them. God's love keeps us pulled in, even in the hardest of times. And thank God for the love of God that even when it seems like all hope is lost and uh, we have no way out, God is in front of us preparing our way. Thank God that he, no matter how wicked we get and how corrupt we get, and uh, it's terrible, and we, in, in our nature, we're not good people, but God says, I, I still love you, and I want the best for you, and you're going to have to face repercussions for your sin. You're going to have to answer for everything that you've done, but remember this, when you're going through the hard times, and you don't know what the future is, remember, I still love you. And I, I know, I've walked ahead of you, and I've prepared your way. Know that everything is good. I know the thoughts that I think towards you. Thoughts of uh, good, peace, and not of evil. Think of Job, even in, arguably, this is the last point. Think of Job, even in the worst week that anybody has ever had in, his whole, in, the, in the history of mankind, right? Lost literally everything. All he had left was a couple horrible friends. That's all he had, right? The worst week ever. Job never quit on God. He never cursed his name. And even more than that, he said in Job 13, 15, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Israel learned that even in the times when it seemed that all hope was lost, the Lord never stopped loving them. They found through his hand of correction that, hey, God is always on my side. I'm glad to be up here as well. It's always such a privilege to be able to bring the word of God and to preach. Uh, never, as I always say, I never feel qualified, and I'm always thankful that Pastor gives us those opportunities. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of First John. First John. We're going to be in chapter number four there. First John, chapter number four, and we're going to be reading several verses here and really just spending our time in First John, chapter number four. For sake of time, I'm going to go ahead and start reading there in 1 John 4, verses 7. We're going to go down through verses 
21. So the Bible says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have, and we have known and believed that, the, sorry, believe the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. Because fear hath torment, he that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him, because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. Let's have a word of prayer, and let's jump into this message, just a simple message about love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity. Lord, I, I'm so thankful, I'm so honored to be able to open your word. Lord, I, I don't have anything to say. I believe your word says it all. I believe if I had sat down right now after reading your word, Lord, it's more than enough. Lord, as I go to explain, I pray that you give me clarity. Lord, give me the words to say. Remove me and fill me with your spirit and power. I pray you'd help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there is no characteristic that is more defining of Christianity than love. I mean, you think about it, there's nothing that you can look at and say a Christian is supposed to do more than love people. We see that most of all in our Savior. Think about the way that he loves us. He loves us so perfectly. And we see that it's all through the Bible. Without love, there's no creation. And if God didn't love us, there would be no heartbreak in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. And there would be no plan for redemption. And there would be no reason to continue through all the things that Israel put God through, as Damien said, there was a plan through all of it. God loved us in spite of everything we've ever done. There'd be no reason for God to send his only son into the world to die for our sins because he so loved us, as John 3, 16 says. And there'd be no reason in agony that he would cry out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You see, apart from love, God has no reason for us. God loves you so much and he has such a purpose for us. You see, the word used in the Bible for love, the love of God is very unique. That word agape, there's two words, but the word for God's love is agape. And you see, God loves you with that love. And that's the only word agape is the only word for love translated here in 1 John 4. And it's amazing when you look at it, to put it in perspective, it's a rarely used word in the ancient Greek language. One, uh, one scholar put it this way, the most powerful word in the New Testament is agape. The Greek word for love, it is a sacrificial, seeking to serve kind of love. The word agape is rarely used in ancient Greek literature. It only appears in Homer's writings ten times. And three times it appears in Euripides. 
but it appears 320 times in the New Testament. So this word Euripides and Homer are both much older than the Greek New Testament. But in all the copies of those that we have, it only appears 13 times total. So he's saying it's amazing because this word appears 320 times in the New Testament. So seemingly Christians took this word, this sacrificial caring for someone, and they turned it into literally a definition for God's love. And they said, you know, that's, that's just what God does is he sacrificially loves us. He puts us above everything else. Redemption and our faith are proudly brought to us by the selfless, sacrificial love of God. The question I have is, what am I doing with that love that God has shown us? And how can I make it known? How can I make the love of God known to other people? So in this passage, I see six observations about the love of God. The first one there is that love is a byproduct. Look at verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. God makes it clear. It's in black and white here that if you do not love other people, God's love isn't in you. It's a byproduct of a direct relationship with Jesus Christ that you will naturally love other people. Now, there are people in life that they're very hard to love, and at times we can be unlovely, and we can be the kind of person that no one would want to love. But we're still commanded to love people regardless of how they act. And I'm so glad that it's that way because that's exactly how God treats us. As Damien said, no matter what we've ever done in our worst days, God still loves us. And what an amazing thing that God calls us to do the same. And that's through a relationship with God, and only through a relationship with God can we make this kind of love. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says it this way, But as touching brotherly love, brethren, or needeth not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. He's saying, in other words, you guys don't even need me to tell you. Naturally, your relationship with God says you need to love other people. He's saying that should be natural to a Christian. Verse 8 here, it's making it clear that a lack of love is a clear indicator of a lack of a relationship with Jesus Christ. So if we struggle to love other people, maybe it's because we need to learn this love of God. We need to experience it in our personal life. Or maybe it's because we've walked away from God to where we're not having a daily walk with him and we're needing to grow in that area. So we've seen that it's a byproduct, but verses 9 and 10, it reminds us that it's a selfless love. That's that second observation there. It's a selfless love. Verses 9 and 10 says, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only son, only begotten son, into this world, into the world, that we might live through him, here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The love of God is so appealing and contagious because it is selfless. It's so sacrificial, and that's why we, we can't help but be drawn to God's love. There's just something different about it. We love to be cared about. And we love for people to look at us in a special light. And that's exactly what God does when he sees us. He says, you know what? I'll do anything to show them my love. I'll die for them. What are we willing to give up for someone else so that they can experience that love? The third point that we're going to see here is it's not only a byproduct. It's not only sacrificial, but it's also always expressed. Love of God is always expressed. And that's seen in verses 11 through 15. 11 through 13 says there, beloved, if God so loved us, we are also to love one another. For sake of time, we'll not read all the verses there, but you see, the thing we need to consider is what can I do to love others and to put them first? What can I do? Because that's exactly what God says. 
here. He's saying, you know what? Because God so loved us and put us first in everything that he did and sacrificing himself for us, how can I love other people? We ought to love other people. We should do this for them because God has called us to that. You know, Jesus even, he commands Christians to do this in John chapter 13. Verses 30 through 34 through 35 say, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. So literally, God's saying, Jesus tells us here, people will know you're my follower if you love your brother. Now, if I as a Christian do not have love for, say, Damien does something wrong to me, if I can't love him through it, chances are there's a problem with me. It's not a problem with him. He may have done wrong, but the problem is with the brother that can't forgive someone else's wronged them. So as a Christian, we're called to love other people no matter what. It's expressing love and showing people outside of a situation the love that only God can give. So the fourth point there is that love is a shelter. Verses 16 through 18, and that kind of sounds like a corny song lyric, you know, that love is a shelter, but that's so true. Look at those verses there with me. And we have known and believed that the love, the love that God hath to us, God is love. So take note of that statement right there. God is love. And then listen to this next part. And he that dwelleth in love. So you could literally put there, he that dwelleth in God. God is love. That's what it's saying. He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God. You see, love is a shelter. We as a Christian are supposed to dwell in this love of God and know that God is this perfect picture of what we're supposed to be. And we're supposed to dwell in this relationship with him. And it goes on to say that as Christians, we're guided by this love, this Holy Spirit that loves us and guides us along through life. You see, God has such a big plan for us. And if we will shelter ourselves in his love and in the way that he has for us to go, our life will be so much greater than we could have ever imagined. And all those hard times, as he said, can be overlooked. And we can see, you know what? God's got a bigger plan. We just have to trust him. You see, Christianity in the Bible is unique because it's the only religion that teaches that God loves you. You see, look at Buddhism. It teaches you to try harder, to become enlightened to do something good of yourself. Hinduism teaches you to serve all these other self-serving gods to eventually become one. Islam, the religion that claims to have the same God as Christianity, never once in its holy book says that God loves you. You see, there's something different about Jesus Christ in the way that he loved enough to die for you and to die for me. And so if we will dwell in that love and live in that love, we'll have such a rewarded life. The fifth point that we're going to see there, past it being a shelter, we're going to see in verse 19 that love is reciprocal. We love him because he first loved us. Now, whether we want to admit it or not, we are selfish. In and of ourselves, we will never pursue God. We will not look for God, but God pursued us. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, and take note of this part, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of their way. They are together become unprofitable. There is nothing, there is none that doeth good. No, not one. These verses make it clear that it's not in our nature to seek God, but God is actively seeking us. And you see, we are called as Christians to go above and beyond and seek those who aren't seeking to love us, to love the unlovable. Matthew 5, 14, or 44 through 46 says, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. Listen to this part that comes directly from Jesus. 
For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same. He's saying, in other words, if you only love the people that love you, how are you any different than anyone else in the world? People that don't know Jesus Christ love the people that love them. That is natural. He's saying, I'm calling you to love the people that will spit in your face. He's saying, love people regardless. The sixth observation there is that love is a commandment. Verses 20 through 21 says, If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he has seen, I'm sorry, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he loveth, he who loveth God loveth his brother also. You see, God is making it clear. He's using the picture that if you can't love someone that you're seeing in person, you can never love God that you can't see physically. And with that challenge, he's saying, you know what? Go out and love your brother. Love them more than you love anything else in life because more than you love yourself, love other people because that's how God treats you. I end with this illustration. There was a Scottish pastor in, in the UK area. He pastored two churches in Glasgow and London. And he began to grow in popularity, began to grow in demand, and he was asked to come speak for the Moody Church. So he bought himself, his sister, and his six-year-old daughter a ticket to go to America on a boat. And you see, his wife had passed away. He was the only parent this child had left, so his sister would help raise his daughter. So as they departed on this boat in an April morning, they got going along, and the night of April 14th came, and you might guess that this man was on the Titanic. You see, his name was John Harper, and as John Harper awoke to the shaking of the boat, he realized that he needed to do something. So he got, as the calls were made to abandon ship, he got his daughter and his sister on a boat. He kissed his daughter goodbye, and he said, you know what, I love you. And he turned and ran back into the crowd crying, women, children, and the unsaved into the lifeboat. You see, this man, he could have jumped in that boat, and he would have been totally justified. That's his only the only parent this child has, he says, know what? I love people enough to go back. And you see that man literally led people to Christ as this ship was sinking. And as he got into the water, he began to swim person to person saying, man, do you know Jesus? And one man at a survivor's meeting gave this testimony. He was saying, he came to me and says, man, are you saved? The man says, how? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And Harper drifted away in the current. Later, he came back and he said, man, are you saved now? And man says, no, how can I be? And once again, John Harper says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And with that breath, he died. He sunk under the water and he gave up the ghost. And you see that in his last moments, he gave everything he had to love other people enough to tell them about Jesus Christ when he could have survived. And you see, how much do we love people? Because that is a sacrificial love that I don't know that I could ever reciprocate. But through a relationship with Jesus Christ, we can do that. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll turn it over to Pastor. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity. I pray that you would grow us in this area of love. Lord, I know that it's something that we can always be challenged by. We can always appreciate your love. Thank you for loving us so much and so perfectly. Lord, help us to show that to the world around us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Those were great thoughts, boy. I think, you know, Damien's message there and the fact is that no matter what we've done, God still loves us, and everybody can relate to that. Um, I say it often. I think of 50-plus years of life, how much sin, how much thoughts, how much words and deeds, and God still loves me. 
um, and he has good thoughts toward me. I think about Colin's message there, of course, from one of John's letters there uh, to little children, to, to Christians, to us, and uh, so much in, in his thoughts there. And, uh, but, uh, boy, that, that last thought, love is a commandment. And, uh, you know, we ought to, uh, we live in a culture that is uh, divisive in many ways, but God's people should never be that way. God expects us to love one another, and he's certainly given us the pattern to do that. I appreciate these young men. I appreciate their, their effort tonight with the word, and I hope the Lord spoke to you. I, I always say it. doesn't matter who's preaching. God always has something for us, and if, if, if you go home from church anytime and you don't, and you don't get something, um, it's not because it wasn't there for you. It's uh, kind of like you're going through a buffet line. You, you may not find exactly what you like, but I guarantee you'll find something you need. And so I appreciate these young men speaking to our hearts tonight. Let's stand, shall we?